We've been talking about the secret of contentment. Seemed like a good time to talk about the idea of joy, contentment, and the book of Philippians has always impressed me since I first became a Christian and read the book of Philippians that Paul said, I've learned the secret of being content in any circumstance. And I thought that's something the whole world has always been looking for. And I think this book maps out some of the key ways to think and act that will get us there. Well, in this lesson, I wanna start out by, I wanna show you a few pictures. So look at these pictures for a second. I wanna know if any of these pictures causes you to be anxious. Any of these pictures cause you a little anxiety? Good, because we're gonna talk about what to do with anxiety, okay? That's gonna be our lesson. And I wanna start by talking about why, and this is a fair question, why do we live in such anxious times? I'm gonna make a distinction between fear and anxiety, but in general, why do we live in such worrisome, anxious times? If you think, if you just stop and think about it, 100 years ago, Everybody, and this is true still today for people outside our country, for example. I mean, there's still billions of people that live worse than people in this country lived 100 years ago. But let's, let's just stick with our own little example here. So 100 years ago, people who lived in America had lives that were far more difficult than ours. I'm not saying that, that we don't have difficulties in our life, I'm just saying in general, you would bet and say, I'll bet they have more things go wrong in their life than I do. Certainly from diseases and small things, things that are not any big deal to us. Take a pill, you're cured. For them, it was serious suffering, right? So in other words, 100 years ago, their lives were more difficult. They had much more reason to be afraid and they had a lot more reason to be anxious. And yet, according to all the statistics, the more prosperous we have become, I mean, these lines track with a high degree of correlation. The more prosperous we've become, the more anxious we have become. One of the reasons, and I wanna plant this seed because I want us to think about the first three secrets of contentment. The first three chapters of Philippians talk everything about the way you think about the world. And here's my first point. We expect things to go well. Stop and think about it because you do. Well, there may be the odd person here, you know, Eeyore or somebody that's just like, I knew it was going to rain. You know, I mean, that could happen. But in general, we as Americans expect things to go well. And it's surprising to us and odd to us when things don't go well. I mean, it's a far cry from uh, Hobbes, Thomas Hobbes back in the 16th century who said life is nasty, brutish, and short and filled with pain. I mean, that's what it looked like in those days. That's the opposite of us. If we have pain, something's wrong. They thought, no, it's normal to have difficulties in life. And surprisingly, now our lives are better, don't get me wrong, but if you expect there to be difficulties, you have less anxiety. Because anxiety is fear with no specific object. Anxiety is fear that has no specific object. I mean, if you're afraid of something, 
You know, like I'm standing under a piano and it looks like the line's gonna break. Okay, that's fear, that's not anxiety. And that motivates you to act, like perhaps I'll step out from under this, you know, this piano hanging over my head, right? That's not terribly stress-inducing. You're afraid and you act. Anxiety is fear that has no focus. It's a generalized anxiety. Do you remember the statistic I showed in the first lesson that Americans, uh, over 33% of Americans show uh, clinical signs of generalized anxiety disorder? That is fear that's not focused. And so, Anxiety is a part of our life, but one of the reasons is we expect things to go well. And that's one of the beauties of the New Testament is the New Testament speaks straight to us. In this world you will have trouble, but rejoice I've overcome the world. They persecuted me, they will persecute you when I am gone. There will come a day when they will even put you to death and think they're doing a good thing. I mean, all those came straight out of Jesus' mouth. And my point to you is, is the Bible speaks straight to you that, look, set your expectations realistically. That for Christians in this world, there will be difficulties. Don't let that surprise us. Well, here's our thesis statement. In Philippians chapter four, verse 11, Paul says, now I'm not saying this because I'm in need. He is, he's in prison. But I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Well, here I'd like to talk about this idea of contentment, and he's also gonna talk about joy. He does not talk about happiness in this letter. This letter contains the word joy or rejoice, some cognate of that word, more than any other letter in the New Testament, and he's writing it from prison, and things are not going his way. And yet, he talks about being content, he talks about being joyful, but he doesn't talk about being happy. And so for a moment, I wanna split those two apart because I want us to know what is the Bible saying to us, and what is it not saying to us. Happiness is a function of circumstances. We are happy when we have the things we want or things are going the way we want. That's not complicated, it's not hard. Happiness, sadness. We are happy when we have the things we want and when things are going the way we want them to go. Joy, contentment, which are very related ideas and I'm just gonna speak about them as one. Joy and contentment is more assurance of security. It is not as circumstantially based as happiness. You can be joyful and be unhappy. You can be content and be in prison and be suffering and be unhappy. That's what Paul is saying. Think of it this way. I'm gonna just tell you up front, this is not a very good analogy, so pardon the analogy, but I hope it gives you the sense. Happiness, let's talk about it in financial terms. And again, not the world's greatest analogy. So don't press the analogy. But basically, happiness is when I have the car I want, I can buy the things I want, and things are going my way, and I'm in good health, and you know, I've got the house I want, I've got my kids are doing okay, you know, they scored enough on the ACT that I'm gonna get a little bit of a uh, you know, grant for college. You know, I mean, in other words, these things are going well, that's happiness. Contentment is more like knowing 
that when I retire, there's enough money in my 401k for me to live comfortably. Those are two very different feelings, aren't they? One says, I have what I want right now. The other is, regard, and you could have that second feeling, whether things were going your way right now or not, couldn't you? You could say, well, you know what? I'm really on a strict budget. I can't buy what I wanna buy. Uh, I'm getting by, but I'm not just, you know, like I'm not real happy. I would really like to have this. I'd like to buy a new boat. I'd like to do that. But I know that I am secure. Contentment has to do with the assurance of security. Happiness has to do with circumstances. Does that make sense? Okay, so what is the Bible talking about? The Bible is very upfront to say you will not always be happy. No, the Bible doesn't say you'll be miserable. And if you're miserable all the time, you'll be a holier person. It's, that's not the point. What it does say is, in fact, some unhappiness is absolutely essential for your spiritual development. Anybody ever met a, a child, and don't look at your neighbor, anybody ever been around somebody's child who has obviously never heard the word no from their parents? This is a happy child. This is a monster child, right? In other words, everybody needs a little unhappiness to develop your character. We know that in the secular world. And God is saying we all need some adverse circumstances called tribulations, trials, sufferings. Those are the New Testament words that are used for adverse circumstances. We all need that. In fact, some of that is essential for your faith to actually grow. You will have a stunted faith if you don't have some adverse circumstances. So what's Paul saying? He's not saying, oh, I'm happy. In fact, I'm so glad I'm in prison. The food here is better than I've ever had anywhere else. You know, that's, that's not what he's saying, is it? But he said, I have learned to be content. I have the assurance of what is really important to me. That's what he's saying. It's the difference between happiness and uh, contentment. So here are the first three. Let's summarize the first three things. And notice that they all have to do with how you look at your world. They're all attacking the problem of I expect things to go well. I've had my expectations set as an American in the 21st century, it's, you know, whatever. It, it, living in relatively good circumstances, certainly compared to the rest of the world, living in great circumstances. But in general, we have been, our expectations and our attitudes have been set. Paul starts to reset the attitude a little in the first chapter when he says, give thanks. He says, I give thanks to God for how things are turning out, even though I'm not happy. And so this attitude of gratitude gets us outside of ourselves a little bit. It's paradoxical, I've said this before, but the paradox of the Bible is that contentment does not come from self-absorption, which is the opposite of what most people think. If you look at the self-help, and I like to just go scan the self-help shelves, and boy, it's an exploding business. Most of it, has to do with either giving yourself what you want, we usually call it what we need, but making sure my wants are fulfilled, or looking inside yourself to find the true happiness that is in there. The New Testament says, and Jesus Christ says, you can look inside there all you want, I made you and I know it's not there. That's not where you're gonna find contentment. Contentment, paradoxically, is found outside of me. 
And so the first step is to have an attitude of gratitude. The second is it's not about me. And now all of a sudden your perspective widens and you realize this story called life, these events that are happening to me, I matter. In fact, you matter more than you can possibly imagine. As I told you from Ephesians chapter one, God chose you before the foundation of the world. God loved you so much that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. I mean, don't misunderstand me when I say it's not about you, that you don't matter. You matter to God more than you and I can comprehend. What is it saying? It is saying that, you know what? Not everything that happens to me is about me. A lot of what's happening to me is furthering God's plans. And if I'm following Christ, then I'm all in on furthering God's plan. Sometimes you and I might suffer because God's doing something for somebody that's far, far needier than you and I. In other words, we don't see far enough to know, but we do know this, it's not all about me. You are part of something bigger that God is doing. That, by the way, is one of the keys to contentment. Also, for those of you that are married, one of the great keys to contentment in marriage is be a part of something bigger than yourself. If you have two little self-absorbed narcissists, do you know how well that marriage is gonna go? Yes, it's not, right? But when you see the two of you as part of something bigger than yourselves, and I would suggest that something bigger is Jesus Christ, you are part of something God is doing. You're not together by accident. You're there because this is part of God's plan and you are part of something bigger than yourself. The third secret is that to realize that God is working in every situation for good. Notice how all three of these are perspective changing. All three of these are reorienting my perspective. We looked at this passage last week, Romans 8, 28. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he called, those he called, he justified, those he justified, he glorified. But the main passage, excuse me, for us, I just wanted to put it in context for you is that God works in all circumstances for good. It doesn't say God works in all circumstances so that you will be happy. It doesn't say God works in all circumstances to say yes to all your prayers. That's, if, if you don't like God, fair enough. But don't blame him for not answering all your prayers because he never committed to do that. Don't blame him when he gives me everything I want because he never committed to do that. Let's at least be fair and say God told us up front that he will work all circumstances for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And in the end, we will look back and say, like Paul, Romans chapter uh, five, he says, I consider all of the things that I have lost. I've lost everything, he said. I consider all the things I've lost, nothing compared to what will be waiting for us. And so this statement is powerful. And their challenge last week was, Live like you believe this is true. I know we all say we believe this is true, but if somebody watched your life, would they say, that person is crazy enough to actually believe they're part of something bigger than themselves and that their God is actually working all circumstances for good. You just can't make that person anxious and worried. Now, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but my point is what would it look like if we lived like we actually believed that? And here's the scary part. What if when it says, for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him, trusts in him, 
should not perish but have everlasting life. What if this is what it means to believe in him? What if it means absolutely living like you 100% believe this is true? Well, that's the reorientation that Paul's talking about. He said, I have learned. It doesn't say I've got this you know, immediately. He said, I have learned to be content. And you and I, we've learned that too. We've had experiences in our life and we can look back. One of the things we said was look in the rearview mirror and mine your past for little gems of God's work in your past. We too have learned that God is trustworthy by looking in the rearview mirror. And that's what Paul did. And he said, I've learned the secret. Well, then he goes on. And I want to get into the final thing. And this is kind of the passage that leads up to 4.11, our, our theme passage. He says this, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Again, this idea of joy. Let your reasonableness or gentleness, depends on the translation, be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Well, we can talk about that some other time. Uh, a lot of great theology in that word. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That is a powerful passage. That is a promise. If you're one of the people that looks through the Bible for God's promises to you, that's a promise. It says, don't worry about things. By the way, this word anxious is a very interesting little word. Okay, so in English, it, it will be translated as anxious or worry. Same word. So when you see in the next passage I'm gonna show you, Jesus is gonna say, don't worry about anything. It's exact, it's the same word. It could just translate, don't be anxious, don't worry, same word. And what it, its image is, what this word is, the Greeks had this really, and this is in Greek. So the Greeks had this really uh, way of putting together words. You know what they thought of anxiety as? They thought of anxiety as kind of being in pieces. And you know, you feel like when you're having an anxiety attack or you have a lot of anxiety or worry, you feel like you're fragmented. You just, a lot of times people who have an anxiety disorder will say, I just don't feel like I can get it all corralled together. And this word literally means to be fragmented, to be in pieces. And we translate it to be anxious or to be worried. And so Paul says, don't, stop being anxious about things. In every situation, remember he said, I've learned the secret to be content in every situation. In every situation, pray and give thanks. Remember again, that perspective, attitude of gratitude. Let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which is beyond your ability to understand. In other words, you can't get this out of a self-help book. It doesn't come from inside you. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So I would like to look into this idea of not worrying a little bit because it's all over the New Testament. One of the passages that's pretty famous is in the Sermon on the Mount. So I'll read this to you. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples and a, and a very great crowd. He says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious. Some of your translations will say, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? What is that? That's a perspective statement. 
He's not saying food and clothing and those kinds of things don't matter. What he's saying is, you're, you're so focused on this little thing, I want you to stop having anxiety, unfocused fear, generalized fear of I don't know what. And by the way, that's why anxiety is so disabling. Fear is not disabling because you act on fear. You fight, you flight, you know, something happens. Anxiety, what do you do? You got nothing to fight, you got nothing to run away from because it's generalized, unspecified fear. And so what he's saying is a step back from that and get your perspective. There's more to life than whatever it is you're worrying about. And so he says, isn't your life more than food and more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. Now he's gonna point to God and he said, do you not trust God? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them and you are way more important than they are. And by the way, let's try logic, he says. Which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to your life? Why are you anxious about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field, how they grow. They'd either toil nor spin, but even Solomon wasn't arrayed like one of these. So listen, children, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is burned up, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Notice how he, he connects our faith. He says, your faith is not mature yet. This anxiety is a sign to us that we have kind of a misplaced trust. Now, I'm not saying that to make us feel guilty because we've all felt that way. We all do feel that way. And Paul said, I've learned to do this. He's saying, if you want to grow, remind yourself, reset your perspective. Wait a minute. I don't even know exactly what I'm worried about. And my worry isn't fixing it at all. And you know what? God has always been true to me in the past. Why do I not have the trust that he'll be true to me now? And so that's what Jesus is saying. He said, God is trustworthy. He says, therefore, don't be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, etc." For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But first, keep the main thing the main thing. Seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Let me translate that into different terms. You are part of something bigger that God is doing in the world. Keep that the main thing. In other words, seek the kingdom of God. You're like, okay, well, exactly what does that mean? It means be about God's business in the world. Recognize he is doing things and you are part of it. What do I need to do? Where do I sign up? Where's the volunteer sheet? Oh, you're in. If you're following Christ, you've already been signed up for all kinds of stuff. And God's gonna bring those little signups to you every day. You're supposed to touch different people in different ways every day. And so Jesus is saying, look, you remember, keep the main thing, the main thing. And he says, so don't be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Today has enough trouble of its own. How many times have I said that to myself, by the way? Have you ever found yourself worrying about something and you're worried, okay, this is true confession time. I'm not a procrastinator. In fact, I'm a kind of a get things done, kind of pride myself on being really highly productive. Um, but if I'm procrastinating, I'm gonna tell you how it happens. I'm so concerned, worried, anxious, whatever it may be about things turning out in a certain way. And I'm not sure I actually see how to make that happen. 
and I'm so spinning around about tomorrow's problems that I don't get to today's problems. Does that ever happen to anybody else? Well, okay, it happens to me. All right, fair enough, right? But in all seriousness, let tomorrow worry about tomorrow's problem. Now, he's not saying don't save for retirement. I mean, we gotta be reasonable here. Jesus is not, you know, you can't say everything. You can't say, okay, well, you can do these things, you can't do those things. What he's saying is, look, you know, you're, you're building up anxiety because you're living in the future and it hasn't even happened. Why don't you focus on what's going on in front of your nose? So that's what Jesus is saying, and, it, and this idea is very serious about, let's, get, let's drive anxiety out of our life. It's a great example in Luke chapter 10. You probably know this story if you've read the Bible much, but this is Jesus visiting with two ladies named Mary and Martha. And this is the Mary and Martha that uh, have the brother Lazarus who Jesus raises from the dead. But this is a different little story, and it says, Jesus and his disciples were on the way and they came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary and Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to come help me. Now, at this point, those of you that are type A like me are going, yeah, Martha, you're right. There needs to be a little rebuking going on here and Mary needs to be the butt of that. I mean, come on, let's get, get in here and help. There's always one sibling that doesn't carry their own weight, right? And so I'm sitting here thinking, this is a very reasonable request. In fact, it may not be an unreasonable request, but look at what Jesus says. He sees her anxiety. She is anxious. She is fragmented, she's in pieces. She is distracted by all the preparations. She's hustling and bustling around, trying to make everything perfect. Martha, Martha, and he had to say her name twice to get her attention. Are you that way when you're anxious? Like, I'm listening, no you're not. Martha, right here, Martha, listen to what I'm saying to you. You are worried, this is our word. This is our anxiety word, you are all fragmented and in pieces, and you're upset about many things. But there is only one thing that is needed. And let me tell you how this is literally translated. There is one good piece. Translators do a good job. There's only one thing necessary. But there's a play on this word, this word for worried, which is you're in pieces. And he says, there's only one really good piece here. And Jesus is playing on this, on this word. And there's, he's saying, keep the main thing, the main thing. Mary has chosen the best thing and it will not be taken away from her. What's Jesus saying? He said, if you don't serve dinner, that's okay. Because this is better. This is the main thing. And I love the way he plays on that. He said, you're just all fragmented, but Mary has found the one good piece, the one good thing happening here. And, I, and Jesus knows that he won't always be with them. And so you get this idea of anxiety. I'd like you to think about it when you feel anxiety, when you feel this low-level stress that recognize, first of all, this is because I have an unidentified fear. I'm afraid of something I don't even know what I'm afraid of. And so it's spinning 
and it's firing all the biochemical reactions that come from fear are happening, they just don't ever get turned off because the fear is never resolved. And so you're constantly in a low level fight or flight and no, nothing to do with it. Recognize that. Secondly, recognize that anxiety is really a way of pulling us apart, kind of distracting us, kind of pulling us all different ways, none of which are particularly productive. And so we come back to that, we need to say, okay, what is the main thing? And Jesus said, it's the things that are going on today. You can let your faith fill in for the things you don't know about tomorrow. But that raises an interesting question. And I don't know if you've been this honest with yourself, but I know I have certainly been foolish enough to pray to God, and I've prayed to him saying, look, I know that if I pray to you and trust you for the future, that I can just be about what you said in front of me. But how can I know that you really are going to take care of things? And the New Testament anticipates that. And one of my favorite passages is in 1 Peter 5. And there are two elements of this. First of all, is God willing to, to take care of me? Is God willing to see me through this? And then secondly, is God able to see me through this? Now, those are not trivial questions. The theodicy problem, which is the problem of why do bad things happen to good people? It's called the theodicy problem. How can a good God let bad things happen to really nice people, okay? And that's called the theodicy problem. And at the heart of the theodicy problem is this dilemma, is in the way it's classically stated is this. If God is willing to keep bad things from happening to me, and they do, then he must not be able. And if God is able to keep bad things from happening to me, and they do, then he must not be willing, and that's not very nice. And that's called the problem of why do bad things happen to good people. The biggest difficulty with that is, what if God is both willing and able, and for purposes that you and I don't understand, chooses not to? That's what Peter is gonna talk about. He said, oh, God is willing. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties, worries on him because he cares for you. In other words, the God of the universe is not so busy that he does not care about your anxieties and your worries. Have you ever had something you didn't pray about because you thought it wasn't big enough to, to give over to God? And you thought, I don't know about you, I, I'm not that considerate of God, I just figured, I think I'll handle this one. I think I can handle this one. And you know what he tends to do? He tends to take these things all kinds of different directions. And I want this worked out a specific way. You know, we hold on to some of those anxieties, don't we? But Peter says, look, if you really wanna be humble, you can just, and that word is very graphic. It's like, just throw your anxieties on God. Why? Because he cares for you. He wants to know the anxieties, the unspecified fears in your life. God is willing, God is willing to take your cares. And then in Ephesians chapter three, this is another favorite passage. This is Paul kind of wrapping up some teaching he's doing. He says now, and he's beginning a prayer. Now to him who is able 
to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. Listen to his description of God. He is able, he is not only willing, he is able to do immeasurably more than all you ask or imagine. You really need to think about that for a year or two. I mean, just think about that for a while and let that soak in. If you believe that is true, there is literally nothing that is beyond God's ability to change, God's ability to influence, God's ability to act. He can do immeasurably more than you could ask or even imagine him doing. Our prayers are sometimes insufficient, not because of what we ask for, but because we're so tiny. We ask for the tiniest little things. And I don't mean asking like, okay, I was gonna ask for a new car, but now I'm gonna ask for three. You know, let's, let's be adults here. The point is, is that we lose a sense of just how able God is, a sense of awe, because at heart, sometimes our lack of trust in God is because we wonder, is he really willing? Am I really important enough? Or can he really get me out of this mess? Can God really work through the mess I'm in? Sometimes trust is a, a real doubt. And I think when you see God as for who he really is, there can be no doubt that he is willing. If he sent his own son to die for us, he's most certainly willing to care for us in the smallest of ways. And he is certainly able to do more than we ask or imagine. Which brings us to the fourth thing. The first three were attitudinal. They were perspective changers. It was like, you've gotta look at the world the right way before any self-help. The self-help, if you don't change the way you look at the world, self-help's just gonna make you a little bit better at coping in a dysfunctional way. I mean, if you think about it, here's what self-help is, in, in my opinion. So pardon me if you don't like this statement, but basically, making yourself a better person is simply filling hell up with a little bit nicer people than normal. I mean, if you think about it, if you don't change the trajectory, well, you're just a little bit nicer anxious person. And I don't know about you, but I have no interest whatsoever in just living in my little dysfunctional world, but living a little better in my dysfunctional world. What God's saying is we're gonna change this whole paradigm. We're gonna check out of the whole idea. And so the first three things are attitudinal, and the fourth is action. Pray, pray. You say, oh, just pray. I, if, if I were the politically correct police, I would say you can't put the word just in front of pray anymore, but that's not getting any traction, I'm sorry. There's other things that people are getting upset about, but there's no such thing as just pray. Oh, it's all about pray. It's all about tapping in to God's power. Let me take you back to our passage. Look at what he's saying here, and this is, this is really the key to tapping into this. Rejoice in the Lord, again I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all, the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. That's a command. Let's just break this down grammatically. That's a command. But in everything, now he's gonna to talk to you about, here's how you do that. In every circumstance, pray with thanksgiving and give your request to God 
and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, he will give to you to guard your hearts and minds. There is a transaction happening here. He says, look, anxiety can't be fixed because you don't even know what you're trying to fix. So stop worrying, stop being anxious. Instead, pray. Let all of your fears, all of your anxieties, all of your requests be made known to God. And God will exchange that for the peace of God which passes all understanding. Now, if you're like me, I read this years ago and I thought, okay, I'm gonna try God out on that. And so I tried it for a little bit and I realized, hey, I'm still worrying and so God, what, what happened? You know, I still have some anxiety and I went ahead and told you about it all and so where's my peace? And God said, look in your hands. Okay, he didn't like to say this in my ear, okay? But I mean, he's kind of, this is the thought life that's going through my head. And I said, look at your hands. And I go, yeah, what's there? Oh, all those worries and stuff that I was supposed to give to you. He said, I know, you never let go. You know, it's just like, no, I'll take that. He said, I can't work with that. He said, if you wanna hang on to them, you can have them. But you need to throw all those to me. You've gotta let go of those things because there's no room for me to fill up your hands. There's an old Jewish saying, by the way, I really like this. It says, uh, let every person hold out their hands and God will fill it full of his grace, fill it full of his blessings. The problem is it's really hard to fill hands full that you've already got full of your own anxieties and worries. You gotta empty that, we have to let go of it. Present, let go of your requests, give them to God and he will give you peace. And here's the really interesting part of this. And I thought to myself as I'm thinking about this passage, you know, over the years, and I think, you know what's really missing here? It doesn't say what God will do with my anxieties. It certainly doesn't say, make your request known to God and he will say yes to all of them. God forbid. Can you imagine, by the way, have you ever thought, had done this thought experiment, look back in your life and said, what, where, where would I be if God said yes to everything I'd ever prayed for? Yeah, it's, there's a movie about that called Bruce Almighty. It's really pretty good. You know, it's pretty good treatment of this idea is that things are a little more complicated than that. But here's the key. The peace of God doesn't come from our prayers being granted. It comes from our prayers being presented. Did you see what that passage said? is present your request to God. Cast your anxieties on him. It doesn't say that your anxiety will go away when he fixes everything. It says you will get the peace of God when you present the prayers, when you let go of it and say, you do what you want with this. I'm part of your plan, you're not part of my plan. I mean, I think one of the most arrogant prayers that I've prayed to God is, you need to work this out this way. In other words, I can stop being anxious if you will just do this. That's one of the most arrogant prayers that I've ever prayed. And I'm surprised that he didn't smite me with a lightning bolt, but here I am. My point is that, what am I saying? I said, look, I've been kind enough to let you come along and join my plan. You're gonna have to pull your weight, okay? You're I just, I, when I need you, I'm gonna need you to show up. When I need you to smite somebody, I need you to smite them. Okay, when I need you to do this, I need you to do that. I mean, it is the most arrogant prayer ever. 
You know, and yet we've all done it. But what God is saying is, look, you're actually part of something I'm doing. You give me those anxieties and you can have peace. You can trust me with this because I got way more going on than you know. I see farther down this road than you can see. And you can trust me that I work together for good in every circumstance. Does that make sense? Okay, but the key to doing this, the action step is this fourth step and that is to pray. We should be praying all the time. If you're worried a lot, you should be praying a lot. You can pray anytime you want to. Pray with your eyes open. You can pray out loud. You can pray silently. You can pray on your knees. You can pray while you're driving. You can pray. You can talk to God anytime you want to. And you can let your requests be made known of God with thanksgiving anytime you want. And you can do it a thousand times a day because God cares for you. And so my thought would be a little replacement therapy if you want to think about it from a psychological sense, and that is every time you worry, pray. And pretty soon you'll find that something happens here, something beyond just the psychological impact, that sure enough the Holy Spirit shows up and God does begin to trade peace for your anxiety and your worry. So coming back all the way full circle, Paul says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. He said, I have learned the secret of being content in every circumstance. Not happy, but absolutely having the assurance of security. I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that God loves me. I know he is willing and I know he is able to work in all circumstances better than I could and I have complete assurance that things are better in his hands than they are in my hands. I mean, that's a simple thing to say, but what would it look like if you really lived like that? And the key to getting that done is to pray. So, secret number one, an attitude of gratitude resets your perspective, and we need to practice that. I mean, we just need to remind ourselves. Present your request to God with thanksgiving. Step back, widen our perspective. It's not about us. We really are part of something bigger that God is doing. And God is working in every situation for good. And prayer is the way that we talk to God and acknowledge those things. And it's the way that we hand off our anxieties. And he says, then you can be at peace. This is gonna have wide ranging implications in your life. It's not just a matter of, of kind of a little therapeutic, I'm an anxious person or I'm worried about things and I want Jesus' help. That's good, he loves you, he will help you with it. But he won't stop there. This idea of the peace of God is gonna go way wide and broad in your life. It's gonna change the quality of our lives. It's gonna affect how we deal with other people. A lot of the ways that we deal with other people, for example, you can tell there are not very many people at peace in our political discourse in our country. Why? There's no civility. I mean, you can disagree with people, you can vehemently disagree with people, and you can be really polite, unless you're in pieces. If you have peace inside yourself, you're gonna deal with people differently. If you've ever watched Jesus and said, you know what, he did not agree with anything those sinners were doing, but oh my goodness, look how he did truth and grace together. How does that happen? That happens when you aren't very needy. Anxious people are very needy. 
when your world is in pieces, when you feel like you're in pieces, you are not a person who brings a lot of stability to a situation. When we're worried and anxious, we're just trying to pull the pieces together. When you have the peace of God, you don't have any of that pressure. You're able to, it will have huge implications in dealing with people. Have you ever met somebody who, when they walked in the room, everybody just got nervous, right? It's just there's some people that are just little walking bundles of anxiety and they just infect everybody else in the room. But have you ever seen somebody who walked in the room and everybody just went, ah, things are better. That's this person, that's you, that's me. We want to be the person who walks in the room and everybody goes, wow, that just feels calmer. And is it calmer because my life's all put together? No, if you wait for that, you'll never be calm. It's calmer because I trust that God is working in every situation for good for me, okay? All right, next, I need to tell you uh, what we're gonna do next, but we're gonna have a three-week break, and that's just the schedule at the church. We're gonna have spring break next week. In two weeks, we're gonna have Easter week. We'll be doing Maundy Thursday in here on Thursday before Easter, and then we'll start a new series on the 7th of April. So we'll be back on April 7th with the new series, and one of the things that I wanna talk about is I'd like to and this is a good precursor, because I'm gonna need you to be non-anxious for this next series, okay? I mean, I kinda really need you to chill before we get into this, but we really feel like it's, there's so much going on in our world that the Bible speaks to, but it's difficult to speak to some of the really contentious topics, and so there's a list of topics that we've made that I'd really like to talk to you about from a very biblical point of view, and we'll talk about this, by the way, because anxious people don't take the word of God into situations and make things better. It's hard to be a peacemaker when I'm in turmoil in myself. So we're gonna keep working on this. We're gonna keep growing in our faith. But I'm gonna start out with this, because this is something Marty said that we would come back to, is I'd like to talk about the Bible on the issue of racial unity. Um, it, it's one of a number of things that divide us. And when I say divide us, I'm gonna talk a little bit about our culture, but I actually wanna talk about the church because we need to talk about some of these topics in the body of believers. It doesn't surprise me that all of the topics we're gonna talk about divide the secular world. That is not a surprise to me. But what we can't allow to happen is for the unity of Christ followers to be divided, for a wedge to be driven amongst us on a number of issues, whether that's politics or sexuality or race, or we, you know, there's a whole list of things that the world would love to split the believers of Christ around it. And we're gonna go back to the Bible and I'd like to talk about kind of a prescription for us as believers to be people that make the issue of racial unity better. When I look around, that's the first topic we're gonna to go to. When I look around at this world, this isn't working for anybody. We were talking about this earlier. I mean, I, I'm a keen observer of events in the world and particularly in America and where people are coming from. And if, if this were not so, I would tell you this. If I said, you know, the secular ideology of 
this or the secular ideology of that is making this problem better. While I don't agree with it, I will give you that it's making it better. Here's the problem. Nobody is better off in our world because of the ways we're approaching race and sexuality and politics and the dividing kinds of topics. What I'd like to do is go to our Bible and let's find out what does the Bible have to say because I'm convinced that the biblical approach to these topics builds up. It leads to human flourishing. Right now, nobody is flourishing in this. It's just a power struggle and nobody's happy. Nobody's getting better out of this. And I think the Bible has a better way. So that's what we're gonna dive into on the seventh. So I really do need you to be non-anxious about this, all right? We're gonna just turn this around and we're gonna look around every aspect of this topic and we're going to look at it through a biblical lens. It's best we can, we have, the Bible says we have the mind of Christ and I wanna look at this the way Christ looks at it. And let's be prepared because I think it's gonna surprise us in some ways and it's gonna affirm us in some ways, all of us. But I think you're gonna find a better way forward with a biblical approach. So that's what we're gonna do on the seventh. In the meantime, pray, pray, pray. You can trade your anxieties for God's peace anytime you're willing to let go of them. God bless you guys. I'll see you in a few weeks.